You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. everybody welcome to rocks across the pond it's a curling podcast coming to you from richmond virginia my name is ryan mcgee and on vacation is jonathan havercroft he is taking a much needed break somewhere in the countryside of england far away from civilization and far away from the ability to record an intro however jonathan will be joining us here in a second he was able to Join us for an interview that we are really excited to bring you. We are talking to the one and only from Twitter, TwineTime14, real name, James Runge. We are, we're really glad to, to bring him on. He's one of the more passionate curling fans that I know. You'll hear that passion come through many times during this interview, but he's, he's got a good perspective on, on curling and, and, and what can be done to, to help grow this game both at the at the top level and at the grassroots level and to kind of help those two levels blend together whereas now you know you're starting to see curling's middle class kind of get shut out he's got some good ideas on on how we can bring that together you know one of the reasons we brought him on is he has a very good perspective because he's been to just about every kind of curling event you can imagine so he has very good ideas on what makes a curling event fun for people to go to. So that's kind of what, why we wanted to talk to him today. And we wound up touching on a ton of different issues, but the main thing was to come on and talk about these different events, what curling does well, what curling needs to work on to make itself better, a better live event, and kind of what ideas you can take from the slams, from WCF, from Curling Canada events, and what we can do to blend them together to make uh, you know, the perfect fan experience for live curling events and then how those live curling events can be used to grow the sport. So without further ado, here is our interview with James Runge, a.k.a. Twitter's TwineTime14. All right. We are joined today by James Runge. You might know him as TwineTime14 on Twitter. <laughs> Or from uh, his blog, which is twine-time.blogspot.ca, where he covers curling among uh, kind of a wide variety of things on the Twitter machine. You're kind of all over the place, which is great because it's that way it's not just, I mean, I prefer it not being just curling all the time. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. It's about time we get uh, a few curling blogs and podcasts coming together and collaborating as one. So this is going to be exciting. I'm excited. Yeah, I think I think I've told you this before. Every time that we preview anything, you'll drop your preview, it seems like right after ours. And then I'm reading through it. and I'm like, dang it. Why didn't I think of that to say on our show? It's like every (laughs) single time without fail. But Well, if it helps, vice versa, then you guys go first. And I'm like, well, I'm going to take that. I'm not going to talk about this because someone else already did it. So I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. I'll let them get the credit for that move and I'll come up with something new. <laughs> so where, um, how did, tell us kind of the origin story of Twine Time. And Well, one, why is it called Twine Time? <laughs> 
I get, uh, yeah, that's a pretty common question. So it's really more of a hockey reference. So uh, what I started when I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, here in Canada. So uh, at the time, I was a season ticket holder, actually, for the Edmonton Oil Kings. So they're a Western Hockey mm-hmm. League franchise. And uh, one of my favorite players, it was named Cody Corbett. He was a defenseman. And his Twitter handle was Nip and Twine. And we just, I got to follow him a little bit and got to chat with him a few times. I just really liked his handle and it just, I just went with it. I just thought, well, oh, sounds like a cool name. And I wasn't really all just about curling at the beginning too. Like I wanted to try to cover an eclectic amount of different sports because I have a pretty eclectic background, like you said, and I just, I'm a big sports guy. So I didn't want to have a name or a title of the blog post or even my Twitter handle that was solely curling based because I don't want it. I didn't want it to get into the mentality that I'm only a curler or only covering curling or only interested in curling. So I needed something that was a little bit more broad and something that I think did raise questions for people and go, what the hell kind (laughs) of name is this? So (laughs) it was just outside the box a little bit and just went with something. um, Yeah, a little different. I just thought it was something different to try. So you mentioned being a season ticket holder for the Oil Kings there in Edmonton. Is that where you're from originally? Or can you tell us, you know, where you're from and what it was like growing up there? For sure. Yeah, I'm originally from Regina, actually. So I'm in the, I, we like to call it the heartbed of curling. Sorry, Manitoba. But I mean, they can claim what they want to claim. But we in Saskatchewan know we're the actual real heart <laughs> of the sport. So I was raised with, you know, the Sandra Schmerlers. That's, that was the team that I was raised on with my grandparents. My grandparents were really big into curling. They're the ones that really got me into it. Uh, we used to watch curling together. We'd watch the Scotties together. Uh, they took me to the Scotties when it was in Regina. I've gone to a briar with them when it was in Saskatoon. Uh, they were just kind of, they were the guiding force behind my interest in the sport. So we were big Schmirlers fans. We were watching, you know, Colleen Jones and all those great, amazing female teams at the time. That was kind of our big passion. And of course, then we had, you know, the Kevin Martins of the world and the Jeff Stowns, and we were watching them really hard as well. So it was kind of, uh, yeah, Regina was a great curling hotbed. It was a great opportunity to meet meet uh, a lot of the curlers interesting side fact uh, joe mccusker actually as we know she's a she's a teacher and she was a teacher when she was curling and she actually taught my younger brother in elementary school which oh, was wow. really cool so she uh we nick's my brother nick's gone to a few events with me a few grand slam events and even to this day when she sees him she still remembers him and she comes up to us all the time and she gives nick a big hug and it's really cool that so many years later Everything that she's gone through on her on her career and her Olympics and her curling career, she still remembers being a teacher and still remembers some of her students. And Nick used to watch. They used to when she was curling at school, they would actually watch the games uh, while they were in class. So, yeah, it's just it's it's such a cool story. And that's just what we love about curling. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes Saskatchewan so unique, too, is it's grassroots curling. Even when you're an Olympic champion, you still have that grassroots feel, which is awesome. So is that what, so that was your first introduction to the sport. Do you also play or are you mainly a a fan who watches on TV kind of thing? Yeah. To debunk the, uh, the the rumor of whether I'm a curler or not, I'm 100% not a curler. (laughs) I'm not an athlete at all in that respect. I'm not a good curler. I've curled a few times. My grandparents and I did curl mixed, uh, when I was younger in elementary school and high school and just kind of played around and had some fun just just to get out and be active, which was awesome and spend time with them. But 
No, I'm definitely, I would never say I'm a curler. I would even say I'm a recreation or a new beginner curler or anything like that. I am, I'm just not, <laughs> I'm not good at it. So uh, yeah, I'm just more, I'm more of, I guess, a fan of the sport. Well, hey, that not being good at it doesn't stop me. <laughs> As Jonathan can attest. <laughs> so how did you, all right. So how did you then get into covering curling as a blogger then? If, uh. Because obviously there's the, the normal path, I guess, in curling media is play, then kind of do curling media in some sense. So what prompted you to start up or make your blog partly about curling? Yeah, it's uh, it was an interesting story, actually. It um, Back when I started the blog, I was kind of, uh, I was going through some stuff, going through some mental health stuff. And, you know, it was definitely a dark time back in, you know, 2014, 2014-ish. And I was just out with a friend and uh, I was talking to her about it and just telling her some of the stuff I was going through and, and this dark cloud that I just had over my head or a few things that have happened to me. And she just kind of said, well, what's just tell me some of the things that make you happy. That'll put you in a positive mind space. And I just said, well, you know, watching sports or going to events or being in a sporting arena, just that relaxes me or that calms me or that makes me not think of all the negative thoughts I have in my head. And she's like, well, why don't you just write about it? You're a good writer. You have a degree in it. You just write whatever you want. Uh, pick a sport or pick a few sports that you think that you have some knowledge on or some passion for and just write about it. And I said, well, that's great. No one's going to care what I have to say. Like you said, you know, I think we live in a world right now where the most accreditation respect goes to previous athletes. And that's great. You know, they offer a realm of knowledge and information that those that don't compete at the highest level don't have. And that's awesome. We want to hear that because that's a great way to learn more about the sport, but it's not the only voice out there. And, you know, we need to respect the fact that there's a lot of voices out there that aren't just athletes that have equal knowledge of the sport or can bring a different perspective that we need to include and hear about. So she kind of convinced me. I just started it up and went really slow and then it just kind of blew up. It generally just started getting going and, you know, it kind of really did help with my mental health. It ended up being more of a mental health saver for me. And I didn't expect it to be what it turned into. That was a added benefit and an added plus. Um, and it just grew like once I, I do have to say, I found a lot of the European teams, they kind of gravitated towards it first more than the North American teams. Um, teams like Binia Felcher and Nicholas Adine and, and those kind of like, you know, major champions when they start following you and start reading it and start even just sending you little comments like, hey, this was a good post. Didn't have to be a lot of comments. They didn't have to feedback a lot. But just to hear that when you're starting out and when you have all those doubts in your head and you're already dealing with a whole bunch of other mental health issues, that was just a big positive for me. And it was a big plus. And that's kind of what kept me going. And then all of a sudden the train just, you know, rolled along and the snowball effect happened. And, you know, I'm on what I think this is year seven or eight. I'll be starting with the new season, which is kind of exciting and kind of scary because I didn't think it would go on this long. <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful for uh, for anybody that follows it or follows the blog and, and has been supportive and sends positive thoughts. It always means a lot. And anytime I do get any positive comments, I always try my best to respond to every single one of them because if people are taking time out of their day to read what I write. And I'm just kind of a nobody. I'm not, I'm not, like we said, I'm not an athlete. I'm not into the sport. I, you know, that's not my job. I don't get paid for it. I do it off the side of my desk for just pure entertainment and excitement for myself. So people are going to read it and devote their time. Um, you sure bet I'll, uh, I'll get back to you and tell you thanks for doing it because, you know, appreciation works both ways. Yeah. So one, one of the reasons I really, things I really like about your blog is the, the ranking system. I think you were, 
I think there were like now there's a whole bunch of different ranking systems out there. Obviously, like the order of merits, the one that that kind of matters for teams. But what's useful about about yours is that like week in, week out, you're kind of covering the tour, you're covering the you know you're covering events in Nanaimo or whatever, like the, the smaller tier tour events, and you've got a really good way of organizing it that makes sense. I think for for the casual fan at least. So, can you explain? I guess first of all, how you came up with this system. And then what your what your justifications are for it, and then how it how it kind of works. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for saying that. It was, um, yeah, it was something I think you know when I do when I came up with the power rankings idea. I've always I love ESPN for that reason. I, they do it for so many different sports. They've done it for years. Being a college football guy like I am, I mean, I went to the University of Oregon, so I'm all about college football. And for them to do power rankings on so many different sports and stuff, I gravitate towards those articles, even when I was younger and a kid. So I was just kind of like, I don't see this in curling. Why don't we do power rankings? And why don't we have like a system that makes more sense? And, you know, the current system with all the math and your champions and blah, blah, blah. And your rankings have like to that 100th decimal point and blah, like that's just seemed so ridiculous to me. I'm just like, this has got to be an easier system. Like the general casual fan is going to look at this and be like, Okay, so one team has 312.456 points and the next team has 309.725. Like, what the hell is that? How do you get a point seven two five? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So it's just kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to throw out some ideas and see what I can come up with. And being a big tennis fan as well, I like the tennis system. So back in, I guess that that post came out in August of 2016. Uh, I'm glad you guys said that, said that because I had to look it up when I really when I put out that first post. I was like, Jesus, that was like five years ago. I made that proposal <laughs> on what I thought was a good idea. So it's good to go back and read it actually. Um, so yeah, anyone that wants to read it, August 24th, 2016, on my blog page, you can read <laughs> all about the details on it. Um, but I thought it was a really cool idea to really build up a tier system and a tour system around that, right? So you have, we know we have our Grand Slam events, which are majors, similar to the majors of tennis, the big four. And then you have some special events, European Championships, PACs, um, you know, Tour Challenge, Champions Cup, stuff like that. And then I just looked at the whole tour overall and I was like, you know, why are these not broken up into a more categorical way? Like, why can't we have the tour 1000s, the tour 500s, the tour 250s and just develop what a qualification system might look like for tennis? It's based on what the purse is. Right. So it's generally the amount of people that enter the event and a purse combined. And that's how you get your your designation if you're the host tournament, if you're the, you know, the organizers of the event. So I just thought that was really cool. The point system's easy. You know, you enter a Tour 1000 event, you win it, you get 1,000 points. You know, you come runner-up, you get 500. You finish the semifinals, you get 250 or whatever. It could be whatever denomination numbers. I just had to put something there and just break it down that way. And I thought that was a really intelligent system that they have developed. Is there negatives to it? Of course. There's always going to be flaws with every system that's developed in sports with a ranking. Nothing will ever be perfect. So the point of argument saying, well, it's got this flaw, this flaw, this flaw. Well, yeah, that's true. But the current system also has this flaw, this flaw, this flaw. So we're not going to get anywhere by butting heads on which system has more negatives. I think that's one of the things of the mental health side that I push is that's great that you have a negative opinion on it. That's awesome. I don't really care what your negative opinion is. I'd love to hear if you don't like it, tell me why and how we can correct it. Let's work together on building a better system for everyone involved, not just the athletes, but also the fans, the organizers, the sponsors. There's so many different stakeholders at play when you talk about the world curling tour and you talk about these events and we need to incorporate all that together. So 
that's what I kind of did. I kind of looked at it from that lens. I also really liked about tennis that you had to play a mandatory number of events. So, you know, you have to play at least four to six tour 1000 events during the year. You have to play a certain number of tour 500s. You have to play, you can play as many tour 250s, but only, you know, the top eight that you score, that would go to your rankings total. So I like that system of not only having a point system that's more clear, but then a little bit more of a requirement that teams and athletes have to go to some of these smaller events. Because if we don't start promoting the Tour 500 or the Tour 250 type of events, those events are going to go away and they're going to disappear. And we've already seen that over the last couple of years pre-COVID that a lot of tour events were all of a sudden no longer on the calendar. Why weren't they there? because of money teams weren't going to them we're seeing more of the elite slam teams really only play slam schedules and maybe one or two other tour events like i'm sorry but that's not going to cut it if you want a tour and you want a sport to thrive and you want to get to that professional status you're going to have to step outside a little bit of a comfort zone and start doing that and i get you know the difference with curling of athletes being having other jobs and having families and all that stuff as well as being athletes. And it is a fine balance and a hard line to, to kind of navigate. So I understand that, but we have to build a system and a tour system that makes sense for the greater good of the sport. And it shouldn't be defined by what the qualifications are as an athlete itself. It has to be a bigger picture lens. So I just wanted to try to look at it from a macro lens, not analyze it from just what's in the best interest of a curling athlete who has a family and everything, which no disrespect to that. I think that still is a very relevant point and props to players that do that. But sometimes we have to pull back a little bit and go, what makes the better use of the entire sport? And everyone else can adapt and change, I think, around a structure that makes sense if we're all on board with the same idea. So that was kind of the whole idea of it. I think it was great that the Junior Slam Series in Ontario, they reached out to me pre-pandemic and they actually started using the same system, which was cool. It was great to see it actual in place, the same one that I developed. And we kind of had some good conversations. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they adapt it. They're going to make some changes to it. And I think that's great. And I'm excited to see how they use it and, and what it does for them. So it, it's kind of, it, it's really exciting. I'm excited to see that people are actually gravitating and understanding it a bit and have some comments on it, which is awesome. That's the whole point of this is let's have a discussion. There's no right or wrong answer. I still feel, and I feel like the where there's room for all of our opinions inside the house, just let's share them, but let's also do it in a respectful manner because we're all here for the greater good. And that's to make the sport as best as it possibly can. That was a really long answer, by the way. No, no, that's, that's really good. I, I think what I guess so one thing I like actually is I like having lots of systems and I like just going to when we have a normal season, this season, I think you have to basically throw everything out because it was such a weird yeah. season, but in the before times, one of the things I actually like as a curling fan is I can go to like three or four different web pages and see the different rankings, right? Maybe mm-hmm. in yours, someone like John Epping's near the top, but maybe on a different one like Ken Palm, it's Nicodine or something. And just hypothetically, uh, I yeah. can't remember who. So, so what do you notice with yours? Like, how do teams fare differently with your system compared to some of the other ones out there? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, like you said, the top the top five to 10 teams in the world are pretty much the same. You know, the top 10 doesn't see too much shakeup during the year unless, you know, the team disbands or players are added or whatever. And that's the only move down for a while because of, they lose some points, right, to bring in a new player in the 25% rule and everything like that for forming new teams. So overall, the top teams generally stay the same. Yeah, some of them move around, you know. It might be, you know, I look back at the 2019-2020 season, like you said, you know, there's no point looking at last year because I didn't even cover it. And it was just kind of like 
I'm not going to go into it. There's just not a lot to cover last year and it was a weird year. So I didn't really go with that with my rankings, but back at 2019, 2020, you know, I had Jacobs and, and Hasselberg finished one, two for me. Those are also the same teams that finished one, two on the world rankings that year. They also topped the money list. So there was consistency there, but the top five kind of shaked up a little bit, right? Like where Gushu and Epping might've been two, three on mine. It was the other, they, they were flipped on the world rankings. Um, you know, Fujisawa for me finished third on the world ranking. She finished fifth. So there was slight moving around, but overall in the grand scheme, when you look at the rankings, they're really there to kind of qualify for slams. Let's be real. Like what else do we use these rankings for in the grand scheme of the world? It doesn't really seem like we use them for much really. So the big five to 10 doesn't really change a lot where I noticed it the most was the season before with Alina Kovaleva's team from Russia. That was the big one for me. That's when I really honestly started feeling like my ranking system did reveal a little bit of a gap in the current system because her team played a lot of events. They played a lot of the smaller events, which would have been the tour two fifties to tour five hundreds under my system. And they were winning. They were making the playoffs. They were qualifying for all those events. They won some tournaments. But the current system didn't really reward them for that. I thought they should have been a slam team throughout that entire year. They weren't. They didn't get to play slams at all because they didn't qualify for them. Well, why didn't they? Because the current system really screwed them. They should have been there. And now look at them now. Uh, Are they a slam team? Yeah, they are. Are they competing for slam titles? You bet they are. Are they winning, doing well at Euros? Uh, Yeah, they are. They have been for years. So... How can anyone rationalize and say to me, well, the current system is set up and it is rewarding the best teams. Is it? Because Team Kovaleva sure as hell got screwed in 2018-19 by not getting to play the events that I think they equally qualified for. So that's where I really started seeing it more. I saw the same with Matt Dunstone when he really built his new team. Same deal, right? They played a lot of the smaller events. They really were getting their feet wet as a new team and they were doing really well and they moved up the rankings too but they didn't finish in the top 10 as well. And they were kind of my top, you know, they finished 10th, 11th for me. And all of a sudden for most of the year, they were a lot lower than that. They piled it on at the end of the year and entered a lot of events to gain those points to move up the rankings. They did a smart schedule. I think it was very strategic on their behalf. So props to them, but the system, the way that it's currently set up made them play a lot more events back to back to back than I think they should have had to based on their results. If you do the tour system that I kind of looked at, I don't think they needed to play that much. They were doing really well. They were winning the events they needed to win. They could have been in the slams a lot earlier in that season than when they actually made it. So I think when you go outside the top 10 and you start looking at 11 to 15, 11 to 20, that's the slam cutoff you know, range of rankings. Now that's when you're seeing the big difference. And when you talk to those teams, what are they going to tell you? That's the big thing for them is, you know, I'm in 14th to 16th. How do I stay or move up to move up past 14th? The current system makes it very hard if you're 17th ranked to get into the top 10. I think my system allows a lot more movement from 11 to 20 and even, you know, below 20 to the 30 range. You can do really well if you strategically plan your schedule out and you can move up the rankings faster. The thing that I like with tennis is We see that a lot. We see some top players or some mid-range players all of a sudden playing a lot of small tournaments back to back to back in South America, for instance, during clay court season or the U.S. Open series to really up their ranking. So now they're a seed at the Grand Slam or they're pushing so they don't have to enter qualification at a slam. So I think that's what the that's what the system does. 
is it allows the teams to be strategic ahead of the season. You can start planning out. So you can say, we're going to play these Tour 1000 events. We're going to play these Tour 500s. We're going to play these Tour 250s. If we do bad at some of the ones at the beginning of the year, we've left some gaps in our schedule where we know we can enter a few Tour 250s or Tour 500s to really get those ranking points back that we may have lost because we didn't do as well earlier in the year. Right now, you can't do that. It also helps the fans. You know, we had this discussion with Jerry Gertz about the regional tours starting to go away, like you said. And yeah, if you, mm-hmm. there has to be a carrot for some of these teams to play in those reg- in those local tournaments. Um, like the Saskatchewan tour is pretty solid, but um, I don't think it really has an impact on if teams can qualify for slams. And like you said, if you yep, that's right. if you require teams to go to these tour two fifty events. It's going to strengthen the local um, strengthen the local tours and give some name players for uh, the local fans to see. You know, for instance, when I was growing up in Oklahoma City, we actually had a women's uh, tennis tour event, and every year there would be two or three name people who played in it because they had to play a certain number of tour two fifty events. So that was, I mean, and that's what got mm-hmm. people out to to the local event in OKC, even though it was small tournament, small purse. You know, you still had you still had some star power that could get people in the gate. That's right. And I think that's a that's a good point, too, that, you know, I think people kind of miss when we when we talk about this. It's always about, you know, a little bit about the athletes and getting the rankings and moving up the system and blah, blah, blah. But also there's this whole grassroots level, those smaller events. Those are fun. If you've never gone to them, like you said, you know, going to a smaller tennis event, there's an ITF event that's held in Calgary every year. You know, I got to meet the Yammer brothers from Sweden who are now, you know, playing in Grand Slams and playing at the Olympics. Like these are these are guys that are like, you know, when I watched them play, they were 16, 18 years old. Hmm. And you watch them serve. And you're like, damn, these are great. And even some of the Canadian players like Frank Dancevic was here getting to meet him. You get to meet those players at those smaller events. It's more of a unity. You get to feel more part of it. And and it's really good for the host cities and the host committees and you know the host curling clubs they need help right we want to get them some revenue we want to get their memberships up they can market that out that's benefiting to them everyone kind of wins a little bit and even the athletes they get to win too because they get to meet fans and you know that's cool why would you not want that as an athlete that's an awesome story to get to do that you're creating a change there and all of a sudden you could meet one kid at one of those events and all of a sudden that kid is going to look back and they're going to be a champion and go, you know what, I became a champion because I was at this event in this in my small town and saw so-and-so play and that made a difference in my life. Those stories happen all the time. Just watch the Olympics on now. Every athlete has a story like that. Yeah, I think, I think going back to the Kovaleva point, I think, because I'm in Europe and I you know talk to some of the, the kind of tour teams here sometimes and they, I think like that, the knock on the ranking system is you almost have to go to Canada to get enough yeah. points, right? That if you're, and I certainly know that say British curling, they'll send their, their podium potential teams for a good chunk of the season to, you know, the Kitchener Waterloo event or those kinds of events to try and get, you know, what, what would be considered Ontario curling tour or Alberta curling tour level events to try to build up enough points to get their teams to qualify for the slams. Right. Yeah. And the, the knock that, <laughs> I guess there's two knocks. I've heard from Canadians they don't really necessarily like all these four teams coming in and taking their spots, right? But there's been there's a bit of chatter about that from some high profile curlers at one point. But there's also a knock on effect in Europe where teams that used to play the local tour 
that were probably the big draws no longer can fit that into their schedule. And those, then, then those events start dying out very quickly. Right. So there's a bit of a danger with that system too, that, that perhaps the, the, the tennis tour style might help build up a bit more depth. Yeah, that's just it. Right. You look at all those amazing events in Switzerland every year, their point totals are always going to be lower than a majority of the Canadian events, just because the Canadian teams are more high profile and higher ranked and the system rewards right now, the higher rank, the more higher ranked teams you get in each year event, the higher ranking points you're going to get for winning. Right. Whereas if you remove that idea of the rankings of the, of the teams entered and set it at the beginning, all of a sudden, some of those events in Switzerland, they, the money's there at some of those events, they are easily tour 500 and easily could be moved to tour 1000 events. Now, all of a sudden, those teams are going to stay in Europe. And, you know, yeah, I'm not for the whole argument of, well, Europe teams are coming over and Asian teams are coming over and stealing our spot. Like they're stealing our spots. I'm sorry, but I, last I checked, uh, curling was an international sport and that's what we're all in this together for. So that argument, Thanks. That's a great argument, but that's not a real argument to my world. I just don't buy that. I I love the thing I love about sport is I love an international sport. I love seeing teams from all over the world feel like they have a right to compete. If you can play, you can play. I've always believed that on so many different levels. So let's bring them all together. We're only going to get better by being pushed by the best. And the best isn't just within our own Canadian boundaries. And if people still think that, it's probably time that they give themselves a little bit of a wake-up call, have a few more glasses of coffee, and realize that the rest of the world is not just catching up. We're seeing it at World Championships. We're seeing it at Olympics. They've caught up a long time ago. We just maybe didn't notice it as well as we should have. There are some damn good teams around this world, and I would want to see them at my events. If I'm hosting an event here in Calgary, you're damn right I want my European and my Asian teams there because they are some of the best in the world, and that's going to help me as an organizer. So I want those teams. They deserve to be there. They play well. But I think you're right. We need that system that rewards some of those events in Asia or in Europe that let the team stay where their home is. That's okay. We've been doing it in Canada for years. We have a very ethnocentric mentality here in North America that, well, we don't have to travel to Europe or Asia to get points. All of our points we can earn just within Canada. Hell, half the time we can qualify for a slam only playing events in Ontario. Well, how is that fair to the rest of the world? How is that fair to the rest of Canada sometimes? So you don't get to have your cake and eat it too with that argument, I find. And that's where I really have a struggle with the current tour is I want to see the events in Asia and the events in Europe. And, you know, let's get some events going in Australia and let's, you know, there's a whole plethora. The U S needs to really expand on getting more events. They're starting to get more tour events, but their tour 250 events right now. That's great, but let's get more of them. And let's see if we can over the years, bump them up. U S open was a great example. That event easily should have been a tour 500 moving into a tour 1000, which easily should have been a slam over the years, had it kept going the way that it was. So there's growth there that we can see in those events. And let's that as a governing body overall for the sport, we should all want that. That's a benefit to all of us. Doesn't make our athletes have to work harder and put on more stress and more potential to take some losses. Yeah, but too bad. It is what it is. You don't get a free pass to the world championships in Canada. As we know, you have to go through the Briar and the Scotties. Would you not want to be more battle tested heading into those events anyway, playing the best in the world? Yeah, you're right. You do. And if you do win those events and you do play those teams at the Worlds, it's better that you can say, yeah, I've played Minji Kim four times this year. I've played Fujisawa. I've played Hasselberg at seven different events. I know where I rank against them. I know what I need to do to beat them because I've seen them a bunch of times. That's better for us and better for everybody. I was really like passionate all of a sudden. I love it. I don't know where that came from. That's why (laughs) we wanted you on, man. 
you're just as passionate about this stuff as we are. <laughs> so opinionated. <laughs> uh, so you're probably, as I say, one of the close observers of the weekly curling tour out there, right? Like you're basically every Monday or Tuesday, a blog post goes up, looks at what happened the previous week. And as we just saw, you're not afraid to voice your opinions on social media about what you like on the tour and what you think needs change. So during lockdown, there's been a lot of chatter, social media, podcasting everywhere about what's wrong with curling. It's, it's almost become, I think, a little bit too negative. But mm-hmm. one of the reasons we wanted you on the, the episode today is to get your perspective on this. So to your mind, what's the best part of the curling world tour? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think the big, the first thing I would say is I agree with you. I think that shift of what's wrong with curling. We seem to have a lot of people asking that even athletes, you know, everyone's asking that question, what's wrong with curling. And I, I do, I don't like that. It always seems maybe that I have a lot of opinions on saying things that I'd like to change in curling, but I never say something's wrong with the sport. I don't think anything's wrong with it. I think we have a lot of opportunity for growth is more how I word it is everything evolves and changes everything in life does sports uh from sport to you know regular world to the jobs we have everything is evolving all the time and you have to be have that resiliency to change so i look at it as more as there's nothing wrong with curling i think curling's great i think a lot of it is perfect as it is i don't think we need a lot of change but there is opportunity to growth and be better and strive for the future so I think that's the first more important thing that we need to get through to people is we need to start asking, we need to stop asking what's wrong with curling and go, how can we, what are, what are opportunities here to be better? And we can easily do that. So I think that's a big one. And I think we need to, the sport needs to be more adaptive and stay interesting and relevant to fans, right? We got to evolve as we go on. We're seeing it with other sports. You just look at the Olympics, even adding every Olympics, there's no new sports being added because they or rolling with the times, right? Now we can talk about how the IOC is old school and blah, 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 blah. And we all know that. But, you know, the fact that we're seeing sport climbing out of this year and skateboarding and these events that are really pushing for interest from the next generation and the future generation of athletes is cool. And that's what we need to do with, with curling as well. I don't know how many people we would interview and say, hey, if you could say curling is cool on a scale of one to five, how many people are going to say, yeah, curling's cool. We give it a five. Let's be real. It's probably not going to happen for a vast majority of people we talk to, especially casual fans. Even fans of the sport may be like, yeah, it's a three or four. Okay, well, that's great. But we want to make curling cool to be a four or five. So we've got to move it forward and adapt it. So I think that's what really needs to happen. And I think the adaption that we can do that taking into consideration all the different stakeholders that really build up the sport, right? Like we talked about, it's not just the elite teams, but it's also the local organizers, the up and coming teams, the junior teams, the teams outside the top 10, outside the top 20, outside the top 30, outside the top 50. They're still fighting every day and they have dreams of, of, you know, winning tournaments and going to worlds and, and competing at their best. So I think all of that kind of mentality is what we need to see going forward. If we can try to shift and get feedback from all those different stakeholders and adapt a system that is relevant with the times we live in now and move forward, that's what we've got to do. I love seeing some of the teams really adapt and, and move to social media and really push to draw fans. Botcher's team does it really well. Uh, team Tipple out of Newfoundland and Labrador, a junior team up and coming. They've been doing it for a few years, do some great, awesome work on social media. I think we need to see more of that. Teams need to embrace the platforms available to interact with fans and engage with them. That's going to help draw people to the sport, watching on TV, 
or attending in person. So we need to see more of that happen. I think players need to start evolving the old school way of, you know, you just show up at an event, you curl, then you go home and you go to work and blah, blah, like that's gone. If you still think you're going to be able to get somewhere with that mentality, it's not going to happen. People aren't going to follow you. People aren't going to get into you. People aren't going to cheer for you. You could win every world championship, but if you're not doing something to be engaging and interacting with people, no one's going to care as much. And that's really disappointing. I think a lot of teams need to step up that game and get going on it. There's a huge advantage there. And I know there's a strong argument. I got a lot of backlash when I pushed for this earlier, you know, pre-COVID and during COVID on social consciousness within the sport and people saying, well, they're, they're athletes, let them be athletes. Yeah, that doesn't cut it anymore. And we're going to see that right now at the Olympics with a lot of athletes wanting to stand up and find that social consciousness. And you know what? Those athletes that are doing it, guess what's happening to them? They're getting more followers. They're getting more interest. They're getting more fans. And those fans are now drawing and paying attention to their sport. They're being more interested in what's happening. That's drawing it in. Not doing that is more detrimental than trying to do it. Not doing it is sending a message saying we don't care. That's what it looks like. Even if you do care, but you say nothing, Saying nothing and standing on the sidelines of doing nothing is not cutting it in this world anymore. You got to have an opinion on things and you got to get out there and be supportive of things that we stand for. So I think I would love to see more of that happen. It's a transition that's slowly been building, I think, over the last two years, but we got a lot of way to go in curling. We definitely are behind the eight ball on a lot of sports for that reason. I'd love to see that happen going forward. Yeah, the argument that sports aren't political is... It, I mean, it's wrong. Like sports have always been political ever since mm-hmm. they started playing sports, ever, si- ever since the industrial revolution, when all of a sudden people had enough free time for sports to start existing. Uh, going back to then, sports were very political and very, uh, very much divided based off of class structure. So like the argument that there are, there's no room for politics and sports, it's wrong. It's all, they've always been intertwined and they always will be. Yeah, 100%. And you look at it, like, there's always the fear. I get some of the, you know, some curlers I've talked to, there is the fear that if you are too opinionated, there's a risk of losing sponsors. Well, guess what? If your sponsor is not supporting you for standing up in support of Black Lives Matter, or you tweeting and being all about pride during Pride Month in June, and your sponsor doesn't like that, you don't want them as your sponsor because guess what? If you're a team that I like and you're supporting the things that I stand for as a human being and your sponsor doesn't like you doing it, I don't want to support that sponsor anyway and I won't support that sponsor. So you're not getting anywhere anyway. That's a great way to find out which sponsors suck and we want nothing to do with in this sport and which we do want to do with. We need sponsors and and supporters that are supporting the things we stand for and if they're not going to do that we will find money elsewhere to think that there's not money out there there is do you have to work harder for it sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah you're gonna have to work for it unfortunately but guess what that's the world we live in we all work for our money all of us do whether you're getting sponsorship dollars or you're just paying your bills going to your job every day you work for the money you get so you got to work for it And I don't want to, I would not want to be associated with a sponsor that doesn't support me standing up for things like Black Lives Matter or equality and and inclusion and women's rights and and having, seeing the sport become more gender equal. If your sponsor is not okay with you having an opinion on that, tell your sponsor, there's the door. We don't want them because that's not benefiting the sport anyway. And those are beliefs that we shouldn't be supporting as a sport. And that's what people don't realize is the generations that are, that are my age and I'm start i'm beginning to push 40 um but i'm definitely among the older millennials out there but the people my age and younger like when we look at spending our money 
like we think about these kind of things that in in a way that I think that generations before us didn't necessarily do. They may have done it to an extent, but I think that my generation and younger like seriously take these things into consideration in what am I supporting by buying this product? I mean, like buying buying whole milk for my two-year-old, there is a certain milk brand that I will not buy because they have certain farming practices that I don't agree with. So, and I, yeah. I let my money talk in, in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's just exactly it, right? And when you look at, that's the exact thing for Girl to Sport for the future is the next generation, the younger curlers, they are way more social conscious about this stuff. So as current leaders in the sport, we need to see our current champions and our current leaders standing up because that's what the next generation is already doing. They need to see our current leaders be champions on and off the ice to show them that that's good. And we expect that in the future. And that's what we want to see. And they should be encouraged to do so. They should be encouraged to have an opinion. You can be an elite athlete and win a world championship and have very strong opinions towards supporting certain issues that need to be raised up to a higher priority right now. So that's that can be done, but you're right. We haven't seen that really going forward, um, but we need to see it more. Like like you said, there's some brands out there, Chick-fil-A, that we should not be supporting because you know some brands, Chick-fil-A, uh, do some very horrible opinions on some things. So we shouldn't be supporting some of those brands like Chick-fil-A, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're not getting Chick-fil-A as a sponsor. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, I'll definitely not get them as a sponsor for sure. But you know what? Like I said, I don't want your money, Chick Fil A. You can keep it. Uh, I'm in. I so, don't know, man, man, I'm in the American South. It's really tough to avoid it. Yeah, <laughs> you probably shouldn't have an opinion go, on Chick Fil A. Go anywhere that's anywhere that anywhere that's catered. You basically have one choice. <laughs> There's a lot more connectivity between us and the curlers we follow. Is it almost? not as necessary to go to an event to feel connected to your favorite curlers anymore. And then in, in your opinion, because one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is you have been to like every event. It seems like you've been going, going to cover curling. You've been to all these different styles of events too. You've been to slams, you've been to local tournaments, you've been to Briar Scotties, you've been to WCF events. So I really wanted to talk to you to hear like the, the, the differences from a fan's point of view, going to these, going to these events. And so we have this connectivity, being able to follow teams on Twitter. Does that make it more or less important for fans to be able to connect in IRL uh, at these events? Like what makes, what makes a good event for a fan? Is it seeing high quality competition on the ice or is it the ability to, you know, be able to literally touch these people that you usually only see on TV? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? It really, I always find the first thing is it really goes on personality in a lot of ways, right? I understand that some people don't like being in massive settings mm -hmm. of sporting events and it's not just curling. They won't go to, you know, a CFL or NFL game. They won't go to an NHL game. They prefer to watch at home. We're never going to convert that. And you know what? That's okay because they're still watching. The grand scheme of it is we always just want eyes on the sport, whether it's TV or in person. So the first step is always, are we getting eyes on the sport? That's step number one. If we're getting eyes on the sport, okay, now 
let's take away this small percentage of people that are never going to go to an in-live event because it's not what their personality is. It's not their comfort zone. That's not what they like. Okay, that's great. We also have the flip side. We have some people that do not like watching on TV for numerous reasons. They prefer only in live and that's cool too. So you have the dichotomy always at the beginning. It's that middle zone of people that'll do both. You know, I'm a both person. You guys are both people. You'll go to, you love the in-person events, but you'll also watch on TV and both have benefits and both have disadvantages. I think, yeah, the connectivity piece of getting to know the teams online is awesome because you get that, but you're still at a huge arm's length from them. You don't know them, so to speak. You know what they're putting out there. And as we know with social media, everyone's intent for what they put out on social media is always to color the rosiest of pictures of what they're doing, right? You always see the positives, positive, 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 positive. We're great. We're doing this well, blah, blah, blah. But you're not really always seeing the full human beings aspect of what the team is or what the people are. So in person events, you kind of get that opportunity, right? Curling Canada, I do enjoy Curling Canada events for that reason. I like the up close and personal events that they do in the patch or at the Briar, the Scotties getting to go and do the autograph sessions that they line up. And those are set before, right? Like, you know, going into the event, you can see online whose autograph session is on which day. So if there's a team you're really passionate about and you see that they're doing an autograph session on this day, now you know you can buy your tickets around seeing that team on the ice and meeting them off the ice. It's You can strategically assign your money. If you can only afford to go to one draw for a whole briar, and you really want to see, you know, Team Dunstone and you're a Saskatchewan fan, you're going to look and see, oh, well, Saskatchewan's playing Tuesday afternoon. And before and after that game, they're doing an autograph session in the patch. Awesome. I'm going to go to that Tuesday afternoon game. I'm going to watch them play. And after I'm going to head over to the patch and I'm going to meet them. Cool. This is what I'm getting. Right. And that's perfect for families. It's perfect for fans. So I think that's a really smart strategic thing that Curling Canada does with those national events. Very well done draws fans all the time it's always packed anytime anyone that's been to a briar scotty's knows the patch is always packed and the lineups for autographs are always super long you sometimes depending on the teams you have to leave before the draws over just to get in line Mm -hmm. because obviously teams can only stay there for so much time and you risk coming into that line late you may not get the autograph because they got to bounce out because either they have a game or a practice to do later which is respectful some of the teams stay for the whole time i will say I do have to give a pump to Brad Jacobs' team on this because they take a lot of flack on social media and in events. I've been to numerous events hearing people, you know, kind of have not the most positive opinion of them. At the Briar, when I was there with my brother, you know, he's in a wheelchair, so we move relatively slow through <laughs> crowds. It's very painful sometimes. He doesn't have a high-speed wheelchair because with cerebral palsy and his disability, we can't put it at a high level of speed. So he has a relatively slow moving chair for that reason and we were late we just did not get there when when we got to get the autograph with his team they were just getting up to leave and i just said to him like hey brad and team like nick was just coming to get your autograph you know sorry we're just moving a little slow because we can't move through the crowds as fast as we would like to have they were awesome they were like yeah not a problem we're gonna come over right now we're gonna sign his his souvenir you know magazine and we're going to take a picture with him and everything they were awesome that was really cool did they have to do that no because they had a game right after they had a game that night so they didn't have to stay they could have bounced out right away they didn't have to even say hi to us they did that because they saw that there's a fan that was trying to meet them and they took time out of their day to do that so you get that at curling canada events that's really cool on the flip side what the grand slam i think does really well in person is the walk-ups 
you get the walk-up music. Teams get to pick their music. Teams get to do those videos before the slam season and at the slam events. You don't get to see those if you're on if you're watching on TV. You don't get to. You get to see a little bit of the video sometimes when they show it, but you don't always get to see the full video. And when you're watching on TV, you always see, you know, Joan and Mike maybe talking and behind you see the teams in the lineup getting introduced and laughing. That's what they're laughing at. They're laughing at their videos and seeing each other's videos because they're freaking hilarious. <laughs> it's a time to really see the character of the teams and the athletes because they can let loose at slam events. They feel a little bit more relaxed. We see it in their just in their playing, but in you know, engaging with with the fans at the rink boards. Those videos are stunning. Getting to pick some fun, cool songs to walk up with. It feels it has that MLB feel to walk up to bat, right? Grand Slams do that really well. You only get that in person. You don't get that on TV. So you get you almost feel like you get to know the characters a little bit more. And you're part of this like fun little atmosphere. So it's more of a party atmosphere than anything. And I think on the World Curling Federation side, what they do really well is they not only set up the event for what's happening on the ice, but they try to create an atmosphere. You know, it feels more like a party. It feels more like you're attending something that you want to be there for. It's, you know, the light shows and the music pumping and everything going hard. And they just really put a lot of effort into it. And, you know, when I was at the European Championships in Estonia, just seeing the diff- the light show on the ice and what they were doing before the draws started and even before the teens came out and people were getting excited. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, like this is there's a light show and there's all this different lights coming on the ice and there's music and there's just it's just this ambiance of environment that you want to be part of. And you just get pumped up and you're excited for the draw. It was smart ideas and smart marketing from all three of them in different ways. You put those together and combine all of those into one. Now you've got a breakout major event that people are going to want to attend. You need to create that FOMO experience, Mm -hmm. right? That fear of missing out is going to get people in the stands. You want people to be on social media posting and taking pictures and posting videos of the pre of the event and during the event and after the event and after the draw. And that's going to create that FOMO. That's what social media is. Social media creates a FOMO environment. Everyone wants and has that fear of missing out. You create that FOMO at your event. All of a sudden now people that maybe didn't even know they wanted to attend the event are going to come and attend the event because they want to be part of something fun and cool and interesting and exciting. That's what gets people at the event. So you need that across the board. And all three do it in one way or another really well, but you combine them all and there's your, there's your breakout awesome event. You're like me, you're a live sports junkie. Cause you're also, you're a college football guy, just like I am. Oh. Um, and you've been to also like a bunch of other events, like the Australian open. So how does live curling compare to some of these events, like the, like the Australian open in terms of being fan friendly? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, oh my gosh, the Australian Open was like one of the highlights. It was a bucket list item for me. I've always wanted to attend a, a Grand Slam tennis event. So being in Melbourne for for the first couple of days of that of that event was awesome. Getting to see Roger Federer play tennis on center court in Australia is like it, it, that's sick. It was one of the greatest experiences. So yeah, there's a lot of cool things about different events and different sports. I think what curling is unique on is that interaction engagement with the athletes and the fans. You don't always get that. I will say at the Australian Open, what I did not realize until I was there is that you could, after the games, you could just walk up to the fence and get things signed. Hmm. You don't see that on TV. You see it on the major, like the grandstand, the grandstands and the the bigger, the bigger, um, the bigger venues. You get to see some autographs at the event after signing the balls or whatever. Like I have a big, one of those oversized Australian Open yeah. tennis balls. It is covered in signatures. <laughs> 
you go to those grander stand venues and you can sometimes get lucky. But if you go to court seven mm-hmm. and court 12 and court 15 after the match, you can go right up there and they will sign like Tamia Basinki from Switzerland. Her and I had a great conversation because she was dating a Canadian hockey player at the time. <laughs> we had a great conversation about what she wanted to do because she's never been to Canada. You know, Daniel Nestor, I got to walk the grandstand with him after a doubles match. We just walked and talked about the 2000 Sydney Olympics and him winning gold medal. Like we walked for a long time, just him and I walking and talking. That was, I didn't expect that. So there is a little bit of that, but I think with other sports, you have to seek it out and know where to find that. Curling, you know, you can get it. Mm. The athletes are really good. I, you know, all of our athletes in the sport, I have yet to really meet a team or an athlete that's really been closed off completely from interacting with fans. I don't see it. We don't see it at live events. If there's signatures to be done, they'll stay and they'll sign them, right? Even, you know, I think what I don't like is like teams like Team Holman getting a lot of negative press for, especially back in the day, not as much now, but before when they were really, you know, pounding out and just destroying everybody. Everyone's like, oh, they're so serious. They never smile. They're not doing anything. Yeah, well, if you were at the live events watching them win and you saw them always staying and signing for every little kid that waited for their signature, it did not matter. There were still other games on or they had media to do or whatever. They did not do it until they got through every single autograph that was requested of them from those kids standing at the boards. They do not just leave after like, you know, we've signed 10. Okay, we're going to go. Sorry for the other 15 of you that are waiting. That's not how it works. And I think you don't see that unless you're at an event live. Another advantage of being at a live event, not only do you get the signatures, but you get to see the teams doing this. And maybe it'll change your negative opinion you have on some of these teams. Because if you have a negative opinion on the team, I'm going to take a while guess and say you've never seen them in person and never talked to them because that's a big difference. And so I think you kind of have to park some of that on the board. Now to say like all the teams are great. I'm not going to say that because I have a few teams that despise me with a passion and hate my blog (laughs) and have made it very clear that they don't like me. So those teams maybe I don't like as much, but even those teams are still great with fans. I even see them at events and I'm still going to give them props. Even if they hate me, they still do an awesome job of fan interaction. And that's what sets our sport uniquely apart from a lot of other sports is our athletes and this sport promotes fan interaction and fan engagement and i think that's one of the re- one of the things our sport is actually lacking in marketing itself is saying that that's what this sport makes our sport so unique we don't talk about it we talk about it in the sport because we know it and fans talk about it and we talk about it in closed circuits but we don't market it and publicly go hard on saying that that's what makes our sport unique We should be selling. That's a big selling point. If you want people to follow the sport, love the sport, love the athletes and want to attend in person, why are we not promoting that? This is an advantage there is that you get that uniqueness factor. And I think, you know, seeing a little bit more now on social media, I think Danielle Inglis with Curling Canada does an amazing job at events. You know, I've been fortunate enough to sit next to her on the media bench at a few Curling Canada events now. She is undoubtedly one of the hardest working women I've ever seen uh, at an event in my life. She is all over the place. She does so much. Every time there's some good shot, she's running out to get it. She's meeting fans. She's taking pictures so that she can post it on social media. It's not just about the athletes. And she gets that. She's an athlete too she works for curling canada but she also understands it's not just about the athletes you post on social media some cool things happening in the stands some of the cool fans some of the cool fans that get dressed up and have signs and all that cool stuff that's what you want to see you want to put that on social media too and you want to create that environment again so i think that's what makes our sport so unique and we need to do a better job of really promoting it and marketing it just saying you know 
come to our event and see Brad Gushu or Jen Jones play, that's great. But you know what? If you're, you could see them all the time, right? That's going to happen all the time. You can't just market it and say, well, Brad Gushu is playing here. So come see him in person. Well, Brad Gushu plays at a lot of events all over Canada all the time. So that's not going to really sell it just on its own. You got to say, come see Brad Gushu. And by the way, did you know there's, you know, an autograph session that you can actually get autographs from Brad Gushu. You're not just seeing him on the ice. You could actually meet him in person. That's the benefit that you need to see there in comparison. That's the cool stuff that I really enjoy about the sport. And I think that's what we really need to highlight. TV can do a lot of cool things. I do love TV for getting to hear strategy of the players and you get to hear them talking and interacting with their teammates, but also each other. And you see the camaraderie with some teams that really get along. That's cool. You don't get to see that in person because you can't hear the on ice conversation. So there's an advantage there. But that in-person side is just a lot different. So I think we need to promote both sides of the fence and, and really sell what makes curling so unique compared to the other major sports that are also after fan attendance dollars, just like we are. Everyone's in the same boat and everyone's fighting really hard, especially after pandemic now. These next couple of years, it's going to be a dogfight for to get attendance at any sporting event and every sport's going to fight hard. There's going to be discounts for tickets. There's going to be this, there's going to be more promotions. There's more signatures, more, you know, swag handed out. There's going to be more unique merchandise to buy. Like we've got to start up in our game and thinking big picture because, or else those other sports are just going to keep passing us by and our numbers are going to dwindle every year if we don't catch up. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a good point. The pandemic's going to kind of lead to a lot of, I think, scrambling of sports. We're already seeing it in a few, few of the big ones. Um, one of your, so like what, one of your blog posts is from a few years back that kind of talked a bit about the slams uh, that I really liked was basically, it kind of hit on a point that, that's for, that kind of strikes for me too as a fan, that basic, apart from the Players' Championship, I can't really tell, and maybe the Tier 1, Tier 2 thing, I can't tell the difference between one slam and the other. Whereas in tennis, it's obvious you're watching Wimbledon versus the Australian Open versus the French Open, right? They each have mm-hmm. character. So what do you think the slams could do to, to better define their season and kind of give a better sense of what events what? When you guys sent me the questions and I saw that question on there, I was like, oh, geez, when was that post? I remember <laughs> talking about it, but I was like, how long ago is that? So I have to look back. It was like December of 2018. It seems, it, I thought it was longer than that. I was like, this was oh, actually pretty recent that this post came out. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, it was really cool. But yeah, so the thing that I really liked about, well, what I liked about my own post, which sounds horribly <laughs> elitist and, and disgusting. So people now not follow and listen to the rest of this interview because I made that statement because that's disgusting. Um, but what I, what I really thought was interesting is exactly that. I think... Grand Slam does a horrible job of marketing. I'm just, I love Grand Slam. They've always been really good to me. They, you know, there's been slam events, the the tour challenge in Regina. They even gave a media pass to my brother to come with me. They do some awesome work. I love a lot of what they do. Their marketing of these events themselves, it definitely needs to be stepped up into a unique way. It's exactly that. The slams are not, I don't like that they market the slams as a total package of events as well, you know, here's our seven events and here's where they're all located during the year and blah, blah, blah. And tickets are available now. Go to our website. Like that's just not cutting it. Like that's kind of boring and I don't like it. Like I want to see, I think the, the slams are so unique in their own ways. We see it with just the color of the rings, right? Every slam event has a different color of ring. That's right there. That is like your marketing gold starting point right there. You've already done it. 
You've already marketed the events by the color of the ring. So why are you not building on that and making that the standard now going forward, how you market each event? I think each major for sure, the four big ones, need to have their own marketing plan and their own comms plan on just to do that just for them. That needs to be done first. That's the big major step and dif- really differentiate why they're they're so different. From the color of the rings to the format's obviously different for the Canadian Open. It's a triple knockout. The other slams are, are group play, right? So the Canadian Open, you have red rings, a Canadian Open called Canada in it, and you do a triple knockout. Your event, Canadian Open alone, should have its own, like the marketing package is done. Like, I, I don't know why no one's done that. And maybe this is just the PR degree that I have from the University of Oregon, go Ducks, uh, <laughs> that I can just see it and it just like gravitates me and I get so excited, but then I never see it every year on that unique PR marketing scheme for that slam. And I'm just like, this is a big miss. Like, let's go. There's so many cool things you could do with this. So I think that's the first step that needs to be done. The other thing that I think needs to happen is I would like to see a regional breakdown of the slams. I don't like that they're just... You know, they're here, there. We don't know where they're going to be, what province they're going to be in every year. Like, there's just not consistency there. So, yeah, the Players' Championship is always going to be in Toronto. It doesn't always have to be. I'd love to see the Players' Championship be every second year in Toronto and every other second year be somewhere else in Ontario. There's some cool venues in Ontario that could be awesome. And we have already learned, I think curling, I would hope, has learned now that putting it in massive venues is obviously not going to work. We're not going to sell out massive venues. And it doesn't look good on TV. So why are we going to big events? Let's go to some of those WHL or OHL or QMJHL stadiums that are a little bit smaller venues, but become a more intimate environment, especially for the slams, because that's what the benefit of the slams is. It's an intimate environment, like we already talked about. That's what's there. Let's promote that. And I think going to those venues makes more sense. So having a regional approach where the Canadian Open is maybe always in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, you know, we have the Masters maybe always in Alberta, BC. We can have the what's the other one the national can always be in atlanta canada or quebec like let's rotate through but at least have it be consistent that now when you're developing a marketing strategy for each slam now it's also a marketing regional strategy where you're getting to really promote the canadian open as a prairie championship and you know the masters is a pacific you know bc alberta you know it's going to be in those two provinces every year one of them and that's a benefit and i think the flip side of it from a fan perspective is we not all fans are going to travel to all these slams. Some do, and that's great. But in the grand scheme of it, no, that's not going to happen for the, for the average fan. So when we don't know, when fans don't really know where events are going to be every year, that makes it really hard. You can announce at the end of the Grand Slam season where the next season's going to be. But even then, that's not really helping fans for planning out what their schedule is going to be for an upcoming season. And you got to also watch when the Scotties and Briar are because that's where people are going to go first. They're going to go to Scotties and Briars because that's what they want if they're in Canada. So let's space out where these slam events are and really market them from a regional event perspective, but also then let's market what's unique about each of the events themselves. And I think the four majors for sure need to be a specific marketing of them. The tour challenge is easy to market as well. There's a tier two, a tier one and a tier two. You're getting double the teams. So that seems pretty easy. They also have their own rings. They have an orange theme. Okay, perfect. Like, this is all really simple stuff. This is not, you know, marketing 401. <laughs> this is marketing 101. And it's really not that complex or hard. I get maybe they just don't have the staff or the devotion of the time to do that. So I understand that. But you know what? Like, figure it out. Because 
you're going to get, you're going to pay back that money you invest in a smart marketing scheme will come back to you tenfold in the grand scheme of it. We know it. What do you think college football does so damn well? They market teams and out of stadiums and out of everything possible, every cent that they can dry out of you, college football will find a way to do it. Austin Stadium is the third loudest stadium in the U.S. and only holds 56,000 people. The other stadiums hold 101, 115, 111, and we're louder than all of them. So what does Austin do? That's their marketing strategy. We're the loudest stadium. It never rains in Austin. Boom, you're done. And that attracts fans from around the country, even non-Duck fans. Come to Austin just to be participating in hearing what that is like. That's what we need to do. We can do that with this sport and we can do that with those slams and make it very successful. Yeah, I think I actually think they made a big mistake with the Champions Cup because I, I think maybe this is me just being an old curmudgeon, but the Players' Championship was like always the end of the season. And it's like it's the best team on tour. It's the Players' Championship, not the World Championship. It had this thing. Then like now we're going to add another thing and it's the Champions' Champion. Yeah. And I, I actually wonder a really easy fix is take that and make it the first yes. event of the next season where it's like, okay, the 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 opening event, you have to have won something big yep. the year before. That's what they do to, with golf. To qualify, and that's your first event. Yeah, it's like, it's like golf. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you run the four majors at the, after Christmas, basically, in the gaps as much as you can. And then you have basically like season of championships alternating with slams. I mean, I personally, I'm in love with the Champions Cup. Mm -hmm. I think it is the genius way we see it in so many other sports. I love that it doesn't matter what your ranking is. You earn your way into that field. You do not get a free pass. No one gets a free pass. I already hate that we allow the previous champion of the Champions Cup a spot in the next year's field. I think that's horribly stupid. You don't get a free pass. This is a Champions Cup for that season. You better damn well win if you want to play at that event. I, yeah. I agree with that. I hate that it's so late in yeah, the season. People stop caring. <laughs> yeah, they do. And it sucks <laughs> for fans too, right? So it's really tough. But on the flip side of it, I thought about that too, moving it to the beginning. But the problem is the sports is such changeover of teams. Yeah, that tough. sucks for those players that either get kicked off a team or move to another team to not get to play in that event. For some of those players and some of those teams, that may be the only slam they will ever play in. Yeah, And you know what? That's still a really big deal to say that you played in a slam. The other side Especially is those junior, junior teams. teams the junior champions are the big ones, yeah. right? Yeah. They will age out and they may switch, right? We'll see. Yeah. They may not have the same team when they age out and go into men's or women's. And now all of a sudden, you know, let's say Tyler Tardy would have broken up his entire team and just went to another BC team or joined with Cotter or something he could have missed out on maybe some of those opportunities to play at those slams. So there's a lot of, it's a tough world mm-hmm. to live in, but I, I love the champions cup. I love everything about it. I am a big supporter. I want it to always be around. And I will say when we just talk about, we were just talking about marketing the slams props to Heather Nedowin. I went to the first one in Sherwood park. She worked her ass off on marketing that event. Those putting those cardboard cutouts all over Albert, all over Edmonton and all over Sherwood park, Having tell encouraging people to take pictures of them on social media, saying that, you know, find me as a cardboard cutout at a Sobeys parking lot between this time and this time and get free tickets to the event. That was just genius. She worked so hard at marketing. That was the first year of that event. She knew that there was a lot on the line there. That event had to be successful the first year or slams 
Grand Slam may have dropped it from the calendar. Lots of pressure. She put a lot of marketing manpower of her time into that with her, Dave, that whole organizing committee. They worked their asses off and I saw it nonstop. They really did a great job. That's how you market an event because it Mm. was very successful. So props to Heather on her great work because I don't think she gets enough praise for what she did for that event. And I think the Champions Cup stayed on the schedule because of how successful that first event was in Short Park. And she owns probably 90% of that success is because of her work. Oh, wow. That's good to know. My, my other tweak, I just want to run it past you, would be to change the national to the international and then just have one outside of Canada. So I know they're going to have something in, in Vegas, Vegas and hopefully that comes back. Hopefully. But maybe just that one, maybe it's in the US one year, Europe one year, or Asia one year. And that, that yep. just kind of makes it and gives countries from those regions like, oh, we can have a slam here too. We can have it in Korea or in Japan, right? And kind of build the, yep. build the sport that way. I actually really always thought that the tour challenge should be an international event because the tour tier one, tier two, to have both, there is a way more international teams probably competing at the tour challenge. And the thing that we saw, you know, a few times is especially on the tier two side, international teams would qualify for the tier two, but not be able to because either euros they're competing Mm -hmm. in or when other events are that, they want to be in or they couldn't travel for the tier two. So all of a sudden they're not getting to play in the tier two, the tier, the tour challenge system was set up. I love the tour challenge. I love everything about it. I love having a tier one and tier two at the same time. I've been to the event. It's just a great atmosphere. I love it. But I think the timing of it and the setup of it screws teams that aren't Canadian and not in the host province. We do not do a good job of making that. That is a true international event. Because you know when you're taking now, it's not just the top 15. Now you're taking the top 30 in the world. That's a lot of international teams. Let's be real. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of U.S. teams. There's a lot of European teams. There's a lot of Asian teams that would qualify for that. If you move that event at least every second year out of Canada, I think you're going to see a much more diverse, more international field. And that's what that event really should be. It's the tour challenge. The tour is not just Canadian events. It is an international tour. We know that already. So why is the tour challenge not embracing the international feel to it? That's the marketing scheme for the tour challenge is that it's an international event. If you move it to the, I think the US should have have a slam every, at least every second year minimum. I think they're ready for it. Minnesota obviously is ready for it. They can host it right now if they wanted to. You know, we know Asia can do it. We know there's some great locations in Europe that could do it. I think the Tour Challenge easily could be that event and be an international field. I never thought about the national, though. I like that. I like that idea, though. I like changing the name of it. That could be done, too. But I always just, my mind always went to the Tour Challenge because it's just more opportunity for international teams to be there. This something, right? It's like in golf. Yeah. I mean, in in tennis, like it's a different country each slam. In golf, you just have you have the British Open as like the the international open, right? The international the slam, the token. <laughs> but just something where it's like, okay, now we're going to go go to a country where it's miserable all the time and try and golf there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a couple of chicken and egg questions for you. I love it. Oh no. <laughs> I don't like them already. So can (laughs) the big events help the grassroots game? Do you think that these big events can be a gateway to get people on the ice? Or is it the opposite where people go, they try the game, they become a fan, and then they get to the point where they would want to attend a big event like a slam or a WCF event? 
I think they can. I think, you know, my example of, of Heather in Sherwood Park and, and the Champions Cup is a great example of that, right? Like she did a really good job of also putting those cardboard cutouts strategically at different curling clubs. That was smart. Genius. Because a lot of people may not have even known that they have a curling club in their community just down the street from them. Sometimes we just don't know who's in our community because we have our blinders mm-hmm. on. We have a lot of things going on in life and that's normal and that's natural. We don't always know the assets in our own community. So I thought that was really smart. I think if you effectively do smart marketing at those events and you incorporate not just the fact that you're hosting a big event, but work with the local curling clubs, have them on site, have them be there to talk about their, you know, the programs that they offer and the leagues they do and the learn to curls and blah, 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 like all that good stuff that the curling clubs are doing. Why are the slams or the bigger events that are in the same cities not asking them to be part of the system? You know, I've been to enough Briars and Scotties. Yeah, there's a lot of tables of sponsors on the side that you can visit and get some free swag and blah, blah. But they're not from curling clubs. They're from sponsors that are paying to be there. Why are we not like Grand Slam, Grand Slam of Curling or Curling Canada? Why are we not when we're in those cities going, hey, we're going to give three tables somewhere in this venue to the local curling club. If you want to be there, you can be there. You can sell memberships. We're going to allow it. You can talk about the programs you offer. You can do signups for your future programs. Talk about learn to curl. Why would you not do that? That's going to promote them on the same time. The grassroots wins, the bigger game wins and vice versa. They need each other. If one of those goes away, the other one's not going to survive. The U.S. actually did a great job of this at the 2017 trials in Omaha was they allowed mm. one Axarban curling club, which was very close to where, um, very close to the rink that they used for the trials. Uh, they ran a bond spiel like during this, oh, during nice. the same time. And a, uh, a buddy of Jonathan and I was actually on the team that wound up winning it. And then on top of that, they let the curling club run, learn to curls during the trials. So they did, they did a great job of doing that. On the ice, right? Then they put it on the event ice or not? Yeah. So you got, you got to go learn to curl on the, the national championship ice, right? Which is like, you don't get to go learn yeah. how to golf on Augusta, like greens, right? But just imagine that. Like, how cool is that, right? And that's going to draw you all of a sudden you're, even if you're new to the sport and it's your first event attending, you're going to be like, Oh, and here's, you know, I'm really into this sport. I loved seeing this draw and, oh, there's a curling club here and I didn't even know. And I'm going to sign up right now to Mm -hmm. be part of a curling club or even just get on a distribution list to find out about upcoming leagues, like just something to be there. That's that, that cross promotion is huge. That's awesome that they did that. I think we need to see more of that across the board. Everyone needs to do that better. And then the other chicken and egg question I have for you, and it is it is not lost on me that it is three white dudes about to discuss this, but you know we've talked about making curling more diverse and inclusive for the last year and a half now um, for curlers at the club level. But what can what can be done to make the in person events more inclusive and make the audiences more diverse? And is it a chicken and egg proposition where if we build it at the grassroots level and the competitors on the ice? start looking more like their community that then the crowds in the stands will look more like the community or do we get the crowds to be more diverse? We get them into, that allows them to get into curling clubs. And then we see the competitors on the ice start to look more like their community. Yeah, it's, this is really tough. I mean, I deal with this all the time. My regular job is working with not-for-profit organizations mm-hmm. and social recreation groups. So talking about membership development is we, I, this is like, 
every day <laughs> I'm in conversations with these groups. Everyone's going through yep. this. It's not just sport and it's not just curling, right? So I think first step is we have to acknowledge that everyone's doing this. Everyone's trying to figure out and, and work their way around how to make their organization more diverse and more inclusive and how you showcase that and how you can really do that. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, what I always find is the first step is to know your demographics. It's step number one. It seems so easy in people's heads. I don't know why it's so difficult for people to do that, but wherever your curling club is, uh, know your demographics of the community around you. What's the demographics? Those are easy to find. Like here in Calgary, for instance, you can go on calgary.ca. You can type in the community you live in. You type in, you know, my community is called Signal Hill or Sage Hill. I mean, I could type in Sage Hill community profile. There it is. All the stats are there from the census numbers for the civic census for the Stats Canada census. It's all there. I know the complete demographics of my community. So if I'm a business or an organization or a sport group working in that community or my building and facilities housed in that community, I would think my first step should be to look at my demographics and know, and if my community is a diverse community, if it's got maybe a lot of new Canadians in it, uh, figure out what my language is. You know, you can get all that from Stats Canada. We record what languages are commonly spoken in the community. We break it down to the top five in each community. Figuring that out, getting my posters, my posters and my marketing, make sure they're available and not just English. This is like 101 on easy things to do. This is not hard work, people. This is really simple, simple stuff that we do not do in curling very well. We need to expand. You know, we've seen it in the NHL. They've done a great job of expanding over the last couple of years to include more languages, to offer the feeds in, in different languages and be more inclusive. That's awesome. Let's continue doing that. Curling can do that as well. Local curling clubs can do that. Figure out what your demographics are is the first and most important step. Once you do that, I think what curling, you know, I was very, I guess during Black Lives Matters, probably when I took the most, a little bit of more flack, but also a lot more support because I really pushed for this social consciousness because I did not see the sport step up in support of Black Lives Matter at all during that entire time. I will say props to the US teams. I think they did it more than the Canadian teams did. Um, and I think that's not a good look for Canada because that does come across, again, like we talked about, if you're saying nothing, it's making it look like you don't think there's a problem. If we don't think there's racism issues in Canada, wake up because there's a lot of them and we know there is. So I think we got to we got to recognize it. Um, but I think what I really did when I put out that Dear White People post, um, that was very interesting. I wasn't expecting the reactions I got. I got a lot of negative reactions from it. I got a lot of positive reactions from it. Uh, it was very polarizing in the response I got. I got a lot of people unfollowing because of it, which was shocking to me. But looking back on it now, good, don't follow me. Because if you don't believe in that, we're not going to be friends anyway, because that's what I believe in. And I don't care if you don't believe it, then we're not, I'm not, I don't want to talk to you because that's, I'm going to draw the line on my ethics and values and social consciousness and human value right away on that stuff. So that was huge. And to put that out there, some of the feedback that I got was, we are inclusive. Our doors are always open to everybody and we'll take anybody and we want everybody to come curl on our ice. That's great. But if you want people in your house, step one is step out of your house. We cannot just say that the curling club is inclusive and our doors are always open. And we're just saying that. Who are we saying that to? We're saying that while we're inside the club with the doors closed and the doors or the doors are open. Who's hearing that? You know who's hearing that? The people that are already inside. And we don't care. We already have them. They're going to stay with us and they're going to support us and they're going to love us and we're going to continue to work with them. But if we really want to get more diverse and more inclusive, 
we got to step outside the house and outside of our arenas and go into the community and be engaging and be interactive and learn. We have to learn about what the different demographics want from the, from a sport. If you're new to Canada and you've never even seen curling, if you're where you're coming from, doesn't even have curling, you know, nothing about it. It doesn't matter how inclusive we say we are and how welcoming we are. They don't even know about us. And even if they hear about us, they're gonna be like, no, that sounds scary. I don't know what to do. I don't want to make a fool of myself. Or maybe I don't have the resources. I'd have to buy equipment. Like, how does this work? Like, that's confusing. And people, it's a natural human reaction. We're not going to put ourselves out of our comfort zone and we feel like we're going to be potentially made fun of for it. Or I'm going to go try curling and I'm going to suck and I'm going to fall on my ass and everyone's going to laugh at me. Well, I'm not going to do that then because I'm not going to put myself in a world where I feel like people are going to make fun of me because mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. We've got to step outside the doors there. And we do not do that. I, you know, even the curlers and the athletes that reached out to me and send me some DMs and talked about it, this was a discussion I had with them. Like, look, I'm not saying that your curling clubs and the sport itself is closed off from being inclusive and diverse. I don't think that. I think we want to be diverse and inclusive. We are not doing the actions to support the words, though. We're not doing anything to showcase that. We're not going out of our comfort zone as a sport to try to be that. When you look at NHL players, NBA players, MLB players, what are they doing? to be to show that diversity and that inclusion they're volunteering they're getting in the community the teams are at events the teams are you know at pride parades for Mm -hmm. instance to show that inclusivity you know greg smith and john epping are not token voices for that community we should not be just saying oh well there's john and greg pumping it up pumping up how the sport's very lgbtq friendly that's great that they are good representation of that and representation matters they are not the only representation that this sport should feel. We should not feel, well, we have two players that come out and, you know, they talk about and they talk about inclusivity. So we're doing a good job there. No, we're not. Those are two players out of how many people curl in the world. And we think that's okay. That is not okay. That is, nor is it should be their job to feel that it's their requirement to be inclusivity and them to be the faces of the LGBTQ community. That is not fair to them either. So I think there's a lot of work that this sport needs to do on getting that the actions have to go over the words. And the first thing I did with a lot of people that reached out to me, whether they were against me or for me, I said, well, go to your local curling club that you're a member of and go look at your board members. And you tell me what you see, because I'm going to take a wild guess. I don't even have to look. I don't care to look at all the curling clubs. I don't need to. I already know the answer. 90% of them are going to be older white men. Let's be real about it. Step one Let's get more inclusive. Step two is uh, let's designate a board position for a youth member every time. That should always be there. The youth voice needs to be just as equal around that board table. So at least minimum have one board position at every curling club be designated to a youth curler. Things like that matter. That's what we need to see more of. And we're not going to do that just sitting back and telling people we're a very diverse and inclusive sport. And we can put out as many as money commercials as we want showing diverse faces That's great, but come on, that is not enough. And if we think that's enough and we're doing our due diligence of showing social consciousness and equality, guess what? We're failing because people are not buying it anymore. People are not okay. And to say that you're diverse and inclusive all the time and to just say that that's what it is, especially, and you're right, coming from three white dudes talking about this is not well. Like I get that, that doesn't always look the best. But to say that the sport is diverse and inclusive, well, if you're a member of a BIPOC or LGBTQ and you've experienced a negative reaction at a curling club, 
when you say that the sport is diverse and inclusive and someone has had a negative experience, you are telling them that they do not matter. We've got to learn not only how to be diverse, how to be inclusive, but I think we might want to go back, take a step back and look up the book on how to be an ally. Look at the work that Curtis Gabriel is doing with the NHL. Mm -hmm. He's done a great job over the past couple of years on truly showing how to be a cis heterosexual male in a very toxic masculinity sport at some times and to be a, an ally for an LGBTQ community and then stepping up and being an ally for the BIPOC community. There's a lot of work that can be done there. We need to learn what allyship looks like, what it defines as, and how we can really show that we're doing that on a regular basis. The sport is not doing that. And from the lens that I bring to it and what my thoughts on that are is until we understand that, I will never, ever agree that this sport is truly diverse and being inclusive until I see those actions. We can spout off as many words as we want, but if the actions don't match them, then they're just words and words won't get us very far. Yeah, it's about getting outside of your comfort zone. It's about, I mean, being willing to lose friends over it, being willing to call out a friend or a loved one when they say something that just isn't cool and isn't going to help, mm -hmm. isn't going to help the overall cause, not just of your curling club, but honestly of humanity in general. Um, like that, that's the mentality you have to have. And, you know, you talked about other sports being willing to go outside of their comfort zone. The NBA for years was going to Africa with players like Serge Ibaka. Cause yeah. I, again, going back to Oklahoma city, Serge went to, took a group from the NBA to Africa for years. And then what happened a couple weeks ago, Nigeria beat team USA. And even as an American, yep. I was like, you know what? Good for those guys. Yep. That's right. It's, it's huge. And it's, you know, I, I, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Like we don't, I don't also think that, you know, we don't have to, it's not a negative thing either. I don't want it to seem like my passion for this or my feelings on this is, is dumping on the sport and the athletes and the teams and the players and the fans and everybody that invests so much time and interest in the sport. That's not what it's about. It's about just opening those eyes and saying it. And to call out somebody for those actions, you can still do that in a tactful, respectful mm -hmm. way. We don't know what our biases are sometimes. We all have unconscious biases mm -hmm. that we don't understand, or we just were not raised to maybe see some of that stuff. It's not that we're racist or homophobic or that there, let's not, you know, jump the boat. There's definitely a lot of people that are racist and homophobic in this world. And I don't want them at my curling club and I sure as hell would not want them at my curling events. Let's just be real. But to have the conversation with people, it's creating the environment to have those discussions in a safe environment and not feeling like you should, people should feel the comfort level to ask that. Simple things like we've seen over the last year or two with pronoun usage, right? We're seeing that expand out in the world and people are using different pronouns now and having that comfort level of just asking someone, hey, what are your pronouns, right? That's a, we easily, that could be something that the three of us could have easily had a discussion before we went live and just saying, yeah. hey, just wanting to check what your pronouns are. I would be like, I'm he, him, his. You guys would assume maybe say the same. And we'd be like, okay, great. But the assumptions we're already making about each other right away, just because we may look like three white cis males, that's an assumption we're making that we also go by he, him, his. Yeah. We don't know that because we're not asking. And we don't have the comfort level like the next generation, like we talked about, the upcoming generation, you know, my God kids, they're all for it. They yeah. get it. They get it way more. My goddaughter's 14 and she understands. She asks people what their pronouns are. Like it's just regular conversation. It's like asking what your name is. Our generation doesn't do that well. No. It blows the mind of our generation. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right? Like we are just so ingrained in genders too. It's male, female, and it's him or his and blah, blah. Like, right? Like that's just, you know, him, her. And there's just this, the world's evolved so mm-hmm. much on a lot of these topics, you know, not just the LGBTQ community, but Black Lives Matter and racism. And there's a lot of things happening in the world. I think curling needs to move with it. We need to slide down the ice with those issues and have opinions on them. And, you know, let's adapt and change even just the respectful arena policies that all of our curling clubs have. Maybe it's time that we review all those. And if your club doesn't have a respectful policy, maybe as a curler, you should be going to your board and being like, where's our respectful curling policy? We should all be signing it when we join a league. That is standard protocol for a lot of things now when you join. So if your club doesn't have that policy, I'd go to them and be like, hey, you know, you don't have to be a dick about it. You can just say, you know what would be cool? I think we should have a respectful use policy here. So we are showing that inclusive. That's an action that supports the words we're saying. Because now a club can be like, we have a respectful policy here. This is how we show that we are inclusive to everybody here. Because if someone does say something horrible, we will punt them out of this league. There is no reason to say, you know, the F word on the ice. We've seen it in hockey numerous times. They're they're really bad for it and they're trying to get rid of it. Let's hope. But I'm not going to lie. I have been at curling events where I have heard fans and athletes, elite athletes, say the F word. And obviously we're not talking about the swear. We're talking about the other F word on the LGBTQ community to hear that word in public be used by anybody. I don't care if you, if you identify as a member of the LGBTQ community or not, you should still hate that word. That Mm -hmm. is not a good word. It is a disgusting word. And if fans or athletes or anyone's using that in your club, there should be a respectful policy in place that allows you to remove those players from your club for that reason. There is no tolerance on words like that. We shouldn't see that. We shouldn't see the F word being used. We shouldn't use the N word being used in our curling clubs. Those are just common terminology words that we should not allow in our environment. So we need to create those policies. We need to create those environments that show that inclusivity. And those are some actions we can do on that. And you're right. If people are doing some of those or they are saying that stuff, call them out on it because that is not okay. And you cannot be complicit by sitting back saying nothing. You're being complicit, which is supporting the action, which is allowing it to continue. That's not the environment we live in anymore. We got to step up as a community and as a sport community of curling and have an opinion on this and step up and say, we are not okay with these actions and we're going to change. And that's what we're doing. That's what I want to see happen over the next year. Evolution is change. Change scares people and the groups that are unafraid are going to be the ones that will be around two generations after we're all dead and buried. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. For the younger generation, it's this is like water for them, and, and for like we're the I'd say we're the middle generation. I'm, I'm smack. I'm definitely middle aged, so there's no dodging that. But yeah, curling. I mean, one of the things I love about a curling club is that you've got everyone from like the little rockers to the seniors playing. But you also then in that environment see, you know, like that could be eighty plus years of difference and different norms yeah. and expectations. And so it's interesting to see how people deal with that. I, I, I'll, I'll just, maybe I'll just wrap like a little story from, from the Oklahoma curling club. Cause it reminds me of this, that we had, when the club started, no one knew what, what curling club was or was it. And so actually it was a pretty diverse startup, I'd say. And you would, and I remember at my, my partner, Alice was like, this is a bunch of people who you would never see getting together in any way, shape or form. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there was a fairly, there's an older, fairly conservative Christian woman and she came to me like, and there was a couple of people who were out, um, like 
and in Oklahoma being out even 10 years ago, I think was still a bit, a bit, uh, difficult to say the least. And she came up and she's like, I really hope that everyone's nice to Aaron. Cause he's a great guy. And I hope I would, I'd hope that nobody would be like mean to him cause he's gay. Right. And it, you could see that she'd made some kind of shift just by being playing with someone every week where she hadn't interacted with someone from a different background. Right. So Yes, curling clubs have to change, but I also think that that mixing that can happen in curling clubs, I think this happens in universities too, that it's it's one of those places where people are forced out of their bubbles, that, you know, it's not perfect diversity at a university, but certainly people are, are mixed up from a lot of different backgrounds compared to what they would have been in high school. So I think that can also be a way that a club can be a force for change too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think the commercial, you know, we saw that commercial about getting into curling clubs and, you know, someone trying curling and the senior curling member was teaching the younger guy how to curl. And then she called her friends and was like, come to the club. We're learning how to curl. And then all of a sudden all these people from diverse backgrounds and then curling. It was a great commercial for that. It really did showcase exactly what you're talking about. The diversity and the inclusion of, you know, different genders, different races, different, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds, different ages, all of that you know, a curling club can be a melting pot of acceptance. It really can be and create that. And sport, that's the power of sport. Sport allows that to happen. We just have to make it happen sometimes. And we have to push the boundaries on on our comfort zone to get there. And that's an advantage of sport. That's an advantage of curling that you can get that. You can go sign up for a league and you could be curling against someone that's a lot older than you, someone a lot younger than you, someone from a different ethnic background, someone from a different a community than you're part of. There's so much you can learn from each other. And that social interaction, that social engagement is what makes curling fun. That's why we love it because you go. And then after the game, you go and have a drink with everybody and you hang out. Well, pre COVID and you get to do all this fun stuff. That's what makes the sport cool. So that's what we want. We should be promoting it that way and saying, this is an opportunity. This is a benefit of the sport. And that's what the power of sport can be. So we need to just harness that power into positive change around human decency and social consciousness. And I think we can do that. We just need more people to step up. And unfortunately, that is a call out to our elite athletes. I still, I will still stand by my tweets on this during last summer. I will continue to do so. I want our elite athletes. I challenge them. I dare them to try to step up and start being more of a social conscious voice in the sport. Because if they're scared to do it, the up and coming athletes are going to be equally as scared to it. Because if your top athletes aren't doing it for out of whatever reason, it comes across as fear or whatever. No one else is going to do it. Your athletes that follow probably aren't going to do it as much either. So you got to set that trailblazer. There's such an opportunity for our elite athletes right now to really be that trailblazing voice. Holman team Holman's done a great job last summer during black lives matter props to them and their social media. They really were promoting some great work. They were sharing resources. They really got what allyship I think really meant. And I think they were the real, the first major team that I think did an outstanding job last year, lots more still room for growth, but there's a great example of what teams can look at and go, yeah, that's great. They just did a few tweets. They shared some resources to help people become more knowledgeable on some of the topics that they were sharing that's what we need. Just do that. It's very simple. We all can do this. I don't think it's that hard. <laughs> James, thank you so much for joining us today. You're one of the most passionate curling fans that I know, and <laughs> curling needs more fans like you. Tell everyone where they can where they can find you, where they can follow you. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, at TwineTime14 is where you'll find me on Twitter. And please do check out the blog, uh, twine-time.blogspot.ca. 
Uh, check out some of the blogs that we obviously talked about from years ago that I even have to look up to remember what the hell I was saying back then. Uh, and yeah, you'll probably, if you follow me for the upcoming season, which I'll be back on the regular horse doing for this year, uh, you'll probably see some controversial stuff. So I'll probably talk about, throw out some different ideas on what I like about the sport or what I change about the sport. And uh, at least worst case scenario, you may disagree, but at least maybe we can start a conversation. That's always going to be step one. We're not always going to agree, but I'm always down to discuss the sport. And I love hearing different opinions as long as it's in a respectful manner. And my opinions are just as uh, heard in a respectful way back. So yeah, I'm all for it. I love it. Right. We'll have to do this again, if anything, just to exchange Altson Stadium stories. I've been, I was at one of the more infamous games in Altson Stadium history. So, oh, uh, <laughs> oh really? Which one was that? Uh, I, the OU one. I was at the, I was at the 06 <laughs> Oklahoma game. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love Altson. It's, it's an amazing stadium. It's, yeah, for how small it is to hold 57,000, just under 57,000, but you've been there. It is yep. loud. I will say I, I have been to louder stadiums. I've been to LSU and I've been to Texas A&M and yeah, their, their peak is probably louder than Autzen, but I've never been to a place that just consistently play to play was as loud as Autzen did. Autzen gets, Autzen's, Autzen stays at its max like every single play. It's really insane. <laughs> James, thank you again so much. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have you on again uh, real soon. Most definitely. Thank you guys for uh, for inviting me to talk. It's good we finally got to actually a little <laughs> bit meet virtually. We haven't done that yet. So I'm all for it. And uh, yeah, I love what you guys do. You guys crank out some awesome work. So keep it up because I think it's great and the sport right, needs it. Thanks, you too. You Yeah, keep, keep churning them out, man. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.